x squared, so that delta x equals the square root of 0.077a squared minus 0, from which we derive the square root of 0.077a squared. And also, the uncertainty in p is equal to the square root of bracket p squared minus bracket p squared, which also equals the square root of h over a squared, which lets us delta x, delta p, equals the square root of 0.077a squared, h over a squared, and 1.74h bar, okay? The uncertainty principle. It proves we can't ever really know what's going on. But even though you can't figure anything out, you will be responsible for it on the midterm. Welcome to I Saw It on Linden Street, the show dedicated to the joy of finding an appreciation in cult films, exploitation oddities, beloved classics, and all points in between. I'm your host, Chris Roberts, inviting you to join us here at the Linden Street Cinema Experience Theater as we once again dig up a fun cinematic relic from the past. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for joining us. This isn't your standard film review, rather it's a synopsis of a film that we feel deserves to have another inspection with some background thrown in on the actors, information on the director, and hey, if I'm doing my job, perhaps you'll get a half-amusing story out of me. Fair be warned, while we don't cover all aspects of plot, we do discuss endings and spoilers. So, if you'd like to be surprised, please give the film a viewing before you listen to us. If you like us, and hey, I hope that you do, please recommend this podcast to a friend, give us a favorable review, subscribe, this week, we are wrapping up November's theme, Ethics in Motion. That's been our fun selection of movies that grapple with some interesting themes on what exactly it means to be a better person. And this week, we are closing things out with the notion of what does it mean to be tested? Screening the 2009 black comedy classic, A Serious Man. Join us! If you're like me, and honestly, shouldn't more of you people be more like me, you find yourself drawn to the genius that is the Coen brothers. Now, I can't say that every single one of their films has always been gold to me, but honestly, when you sit down and take in one of their offerings, you're gonna be entertained. And you're gonna be, for the most part, challenged in some fashion to go along with that entertainment. Now, I saw this week's film in the theater over a decade ago, and I have to say, the couple in front of me, after it was completed, stood up and started immediately arguing with each other about how one of them didn't get it, bickering as they walked out. The wife arguing that that wasn't funny at all, whereas the husband kept telling her she was missing the point. It's a modern representation of Job. Well, I got to awkwardly walk out and follow this debate as I left through the double doors and made my way to the parking lot to my car. Was it funny? Well, I thought so. But it was, indeed, soaked in a desperate black pit of humor, and yet still with merit. And what's more, 
I have to agree with the gentleman's assessment who is walking out in front of me. So that being said, if we're going to discuss this movie this week, we first have to brush up a little bit on some of our catechism studies and just dig into the story of Job. When I was in college, as a history and or living with political science and other history majors, we would often find ourselves engaging in debates as to where exactly religion falls in the spectrum of public policy. Shockingly, a great number of us were pro-separation of church and state, but we would often find ourselves arguing with those who didn't quite see things the way we did. Hey, that's fine, though. That's exactly what college is for. Great time to have open discourse, experience new ideas, learn how to think, and then how to apply all that stuff you've been learning for all those years, you know, and then trying to practically apply it to real life. But, like so many folks that I've interacted with who claim to have real strong beliefs in matters spiritual, you'd be shocked to find out that when you encountered people that are so vociferously arguing how they wanted more biblical truth to be adopted, you know, used within laws of the land and such, it would very quickly be revealed that they really didn't have a firm grasp on much of what was contained in that book they were so interested in quoting. And that whole lead-up to this story sort of explains the rest. It's not really important, but during one such discussion with one of my floor mates, my roommate, and myself, uh, this individual was commenting that the Abrahamic personification of the deity God um, would not willingly allow suffering if it wasn't part of some grand cosmic design. Which is when my roommate responded, well, then how do you reconcile the classic biblical story of Job? You know, where that guy's faith is essentially tested as the form of a bet. And like all good Christians, the guy we were talking to responded, I don't know that story. <laughs> Oy vey. Now, the fun that came out of this was as follows. My roommate and I decided that it would be very, very amusing to us if we were to act out the conversation, of course, that took place between God and Satan over what to do with the pious believer that was Job. For this individual's benefit, of course. But of course, we did this with great gusto and very much sacrilege. The gist of the story, though, remained the same. Now, for you heathens, here's a Cliff's Notes version. Um, there's, in the Old Testament, this prosperous and very righteous man selected by God to be an example of a faithful believer, Job. Satan, seeing this, argues that the only reason that Job himself is faithful is because he is benefiting from God's grace. And when his good fortune and success are taken away, he of course would abandon his faith in the Lord and then curse God for his indifference, or should I say, seeming indifference. Well, the Lord decides to take some of that action, and he allows Satan to begin to wreak havoc upon Job and his life. Uh, Job is not allowed to actually be, like, directly messed with, but even that's a bit of a push. 
His crops die, he loses animals, and that in turn leads to him losing his wealth and status. That leads to him losing his home. And then on top of that, some of his children end up dying through disease and accidents. And Job himself becomes afflicted with various skin diseases and plagues. Nothing that'll kill him, but plenty of stuff that'll make him downright miserable. And through it all, in spite of his friends telling him otherwise, Job maintains that this has to be all part of some master plan that is God's will. Thus, if bad things are happening to him, even if he hasn't done anything seemingly wrong, it must be for good reasons that are beyond his own comprehension, and he accepts that. So, at the end of everything, God ends up winning said bet with Satan, because Satan can't get Job to renounce his faith in God, and thus Job is restored to good health, he becomes even more prosperous than before, and he is, quote, blessed with even more children. Uh, now, the reaction to this was, that's a terrible story, you guys are kidding me. To which we then had to point out, no, it's the Old Testament. <laughs> but suffice to say, minds were blown that day. Now, I'll admit to you, as a story, I'll agree it's not a very good one. But, hey, you're talking about a Bronze Age culture trying to make sense of how to explain random phenomena that would serve to explain why bad things happen to good people. And thus, even as an Abrahamic myth, the story of Job serves to be used as a real easy shorthand to understand the trials of the living and how sometimes seemingly really bad things happen to folks, and how some are seemingly tested with strings of horrific luck. This week's film plums some of those same thematic waters, bringing a jaded and harsh presentation of a Midwest Jewish professor who is undergoing his own personal trials in life, the way that only the Coen brothers can. So I'm not going to take this time to dig into the backstory of the Coen brothers, because honestly, we don't have the proper setup for such a task, nor honestly, the time to cover 30 years of amazing filmmaking. But what I can give you is the broad strokes of where they were towards the end of the aughts. Now, if you're going to go back to 2008, the Coen brothers were indeed riding high. And that even seems like a bit of a misnomer, because in the 1980s and the 1990s, they too were also riding high on critical and commercial acclaim. But truly, they'd really struck gold by having made No Country for Old Men, and then following that critical, commercial, and Oscar-racking success up with Burn After Reading, which was also a massive critical and commercial success. And... Not that the brothers couldn't punch their own ticket before then, but basically after that, they were able to operate with impunity and tell any story they saw fit. So what's the next thing they pick? Well, they're going to go with a tale that was inspired by their own childhoods, growing up in the suburbs of Minneapolis, Minnesota, set in the Jewish community there in the 1960s, inspired by people that were in their world. Both of the Cohen parents were intellectuals. Their mother was an art historian who taught at St. Cloud University, and their father was an economics professor who taught at the University of Minnesota. And so basing a story around a family that has a college faculty member as the head of the household who was struggling with his personal life, all while trying to make tenure, this was a world they understood. Although, again, I want to stress, this is not a biographical story by any stretch of the imagination. 
So since they're tapping into their childhoods, they're also tapping into their own Jewish upbringing, and that comes into play here, as they based a lot of the characters that we see here on rabbis that they interacted in their youth. And as they noted in an interview with NPR back in the day, the real germ of this story grew from a gentleman they knew, one of the rabbis who ran the shul. And he would hold these very private, very serious conversations with the students when they completed their religious education. They made their bar mitzvah, and the last thing they would have to do was sit down and have a one-on-one with the rabbi. And just that little piece, that became the inspiration for the mysterious and hard-to-get-a-hold-of Rabbi Marshak in this story. Now, initially the tale was going to be about a young boy who was working his way up to having his bar mitzvah and basically being unable to get a hold of and see the sagely rabbi who can give him the answer he needs over time. But as the story kept changing, the focus started to shift into being the dad of the story, an adult who's equally looking for answers from the sagely rabbi. But instead, now we get the plight of Larry Gopnik, a composite character based on a bunch of academics that the Cohen brothers grew up around, working with people like their own parents. And another portion of sort of the religious upbringing is the Cohen brothers really enjoyed some of the shaggy dog tales that would come from the lessons that were imparted by rabbis from their own days at Hebrew school. So they were looking for really good examples to try to use within this film. But when the time came to tie it all together, they felt there just wasn't an appropriate Yiddish folktale that could set the proper tone for the story. One that would really set this tale of a man being tested off and running. And in finding none, the brothers opted to do the smart thing. They made one up. And that became the prologue of the film. Now, the Coens, again, would use a melange of production companies to get this film made. They went with Relative Media, Studio Canal, to do most of the heavy lifting for the funding, but then they got Focus Features to come in and be the international distributor of the final product, something they've done in the past. This whole process was going to be made on a very modest budget, at least for the Coen brothers. Seven million dollars. Nothing to sneeze at, but they're the Coen brothers. They could absolutely make a bigger you know, picture. The Coens, though, found getting talent on board, that's not a problem. Everybody wanted to work with the Coen brothers. Michael Stuhlbarg came on board and was cast as Professor Larry Gopnik, our main character. For the role of his ne'er-do-well brother Arthur, the great Richard Kind was cast, and truly, he's perfect here. But... He's upstage, because then we have Fred Melnid. You might recognize him from his roles on projects like Lady Dynamite and a slew of small parts in Woody Allen films. Melnid was cast in the role of the insufferable Cy Abelman, the man who's having an affair with Larry's wife. The Coens claim that they went with him because he looks like a cross between Francis Ford Coppola and Alan Sherman. Now, the Gopnik family, they're routed out by actress Sari Lenick. Aaron Wolf, Jessica McManus, Amy Landecker got cast as Gopnik's sexy neighbor, Mrs. Samsky, and if you throw in Steve Park, who showed up on other Coen Brother pictures, Adam Arkin, Fivish Finkel, Simon Helberg, this was before The Big Bang Theory really hit, and Michael Lerner, you have here an amazing and deep roster of talent. 
This whole film was shot over two months, starting in September of 2008 and then wrapping in early November of that same year, with the majority of the filming taking place in Minneapolis, with the exception of the prologue, which again is where our Yiddish fable is set. That was shot in the Czech Republic, hoping that it would match the sort of shuttle homestead that you could be found in Eastern Europe. Folks, I gotta say, you've been ever so patient in listening to me prattle on. How's about I shut up and we get on to that trailer? What do you say? Please, I need help. I've had marital problems. Honey, I think it's time that we start talking about a divorce. Larry, we're gonna be fine. Professional, you name it. Larry, we've received a number of letters denigrating you and uh, urging us not to grant you tenure. I need help. We're going to be fine. I've tried to be a serious man. We're going to be fine. Tried to do right, be a member of the community. We're going to be fine. Please, just tell him I need help. Please. We're going to be fine. I need help. He didn't look busy. He's thinking. Don't you want somebody to love? Don't you need somebody to love? Don't you love somebody to love? You better find somebody to In an Eastern European shuttle community in the 1800s, a man named Vevel, as played by Alan Lewis Rickman, arrives home to his wife Dora, as played by Yelena Schmulensen, and he tells her that his cart lost a wheel in the snow. But luckily, a distant friend of the family, Reb Groshkover, as played by Fivish Finkel, helped him get home, and he invited the gentleman in for some soup. His wife is horrified and tells him that Groshkover died three years ago, so clearly he must be talking to a Dybbuk, an evil spirit possessing a dead body. Groshkover comes in and laughs when the accusations are made that he is indeed a Dybbuk by Dora. She points out the fact that he refuses to eat. But much to the horror of Vevel, his wife isn't taking any chances, and so she stabs the man in the chest with an ice pick. Incredulous, laughing, and then finally bleeding, Groshkover turns and exits the home, announcing that he knows when he's not wanted, and he goes back out into the snowstorm, with Vevel worried that he has cursed them, and with Dora saying, Good riddance, we've gotten rid of evil from this house. Minnesota Spring of 1967. Larry Gopnik, as played by Michael Stuhlbarg, is a physics professor who seems to view that his life is finally starting to come together. He's come back from a physical with his doctor telling him that things all look in order, he seems to be in great health. 
Despite his lack of actual output of published research, his physics department is telling him it looks like his tenure is going to go through. He'll get to make a full professor, and that will set him and his family up in a really good way financially. His son Danny, is played by Aaron Wolf, is preparing for his bar mitzvah, something that Larry is very proud of, but juggling to pay for. He does have a few minor issues, though. His unemployed brother, Arthur, is played by Richard Kind, has been staying with them, sleeping on his couch in the family room at night, spending way too much time in the bathroom, grossly having to drain a sebaceous cyst on the back of his neck, all the time working on a project that he considers to be really important. Instead of looking for a job, he's trying to map out the probability of the universe, which makes him a bit of an annoyance to, oh, everybody. Oh, that being said, he also spends a lot of time in some unsavory bars in the area, but what are you going to do? On the plus side, Larry often is asked to fix the aerial antenna up on the roof of the house, and that allows him to look out over the neighborhood and see his comely neighbor, Vivian Samsky, is played by Amy Landector, who is often out there sunbathing in the nude in her own backyard, which makes a mundane task at least kind of fun. All in all, though, life should be good. Yet, when Larry goes home, he's in for a world of hurt. His wife Judith, as played by Sari Lennick, sits him down and tells him that she is in love with another man, a widower and fellow faculty member, and Larry's friend, Cy Abelman, as played by Fred Melmud. And she wants her and Larry to get a divorce and to secure a get. Think of it as a Jewish annulment. So she can go ahead and marry Abelman. Larry is completely taken aback by all of this. Honey. Honey. Did you talk to Cy? Cy. Cy Abelman, that's right, he called, but I... You didn't talk to him? No. You know the problems that you and I have been having? Mm. Well, Cy and I have become very close. In short, I think it's time that we start talking about a divorce. Cy Abelman? This is not about Cy. You mentioned Cy. Don't twist my words, Larry. A, a, a divorce? Well, what, what have I done? I haven't done anything. Larry, don't what be do a child. You haven't done anything. I haven't done anything. Yes, yes. We haven't done anything, and... and... I'm probably about to get tenure. Nevertheless, there have been problems, as you know, well, and things have changed. And then, well, Cy Abelman. Cy has come into my life. And come into I... what? What does that mean? You, 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 you barely know him. Oh, please, we've known the Abelmans for fifteen years. Yes, Larry. but you said we hadn't done anything. I haven't done anything. This is not some flashy fling, Larry. This is not about. Whoopsie doopsie. Cy Abelman? Look, I didn't know any other way of freaking it to you except to just tell you and treat you like an adult. Is that so wrong? Where do I sleep? What? Arthur's on the couch. Look, Cy feels that we should... Esther is barely cold. Esther died three years ago and it was a loveless marriage. Cy wants a get. A what? A ritual divorce. He says it's very important. Without a get, I'm an aguna. A what? What are you talking about? You always act so surprised. I have begged you to see the rabbi. 
Larry's kids aren't doing him any favors either. Danny's been goofing off in Hebrew school, stealing money from his sister to buy pot, listening to his radio in class, and skipping his studies to watch F Troop. On one of these occasions, he ends up securing $20 that he's going to pay his dealer back with in his radio case, only to have the transistor confiscated by a rabbi at the school. His sister Sarah, as played by Jessica McManus, she in turn has been stealing money from Larry as well, using it to save up for a nose job. She's also signed up for Columbia House Records Service, and she hasn't been paying for the actual albums. So Larry starts to get all of these threatening phone calls from angry collectors wanting money for past albums that he's never heard of. At his job, Larry is informed by a colleague that the Tenure Committee has been receiving anonymous letters denouncing Larry as a person and as an instructor, urging the department to deny him the tenure position. One of his students... Clive Park, a Korean exchange student, comes in worried about losing a scholarship after failing the midterm that Larry gave, and he comes to see if he can negotiate taking the test again on the sly, something that Larry refuses to do, noting that wouldn't really be fair to the other students who studied and did the work of the class. After he leaves, Larry finds an envelope full of cash left in his office, clearly a bribe left by Clive. When Larry attempts to return it, he has an awkward confrontation with Clive's father, who attempts to blackmail Larry. If Larry accuses the student of a bribe, they'll sue him for character defamation. If Larry pockets the cash and doesn't pass him, they will then expose him for taking the money, leaving a distraught Larry asking, well, how can you have it both ways? Could you crash? Could you crash? With all respect, Mr. Park, I don't think it's that. Yes. No, it would be a culture clash if it were the custom in your land to bribe people for grades. Yes. So, you're saying it is the custom? No, this is a defamation. Crown for lawsuit. Let me get this straight. You're threatening to sue me for defaming your son? Yes. But it would... Is this man bothering you? Is he bothering me? No. I... If it were defamation, there would have to be someone I was defaming him too. Or I... All right. I... Let's keep it simple. I could pretend the money never appeared. That's not defaming anyone. Yes. And uh, passing grade. Passing grade. Yes. Or you'll sue me. For taking the money. So he did leave the money. This is defamation. It doesn't make sense. Either he left the money or he didn't. Please. Accept the mystery. Larry is forced by Sai and Judith to sit down and discuss how things are going to play out. With Sai the entire time being saccharine and wearing this guise of being very reasonable, as if he's not a factor at all in this decision, all while insisting that Larry and his brother should move out of their house so that Sai can move in and basically take over Larry's family. Larry is forced to move into a crummy motel in town with Arthur, the Jolly Roger, and Arthur is slowly starting to deteriorate mentally. Judith ends up emptying out their joint bank accounts, leaving Larry essentially destitute, which starts to put a strain on his moral high ground to not accept that envelope of cash. Arthur ends up getting arrested on solicitation charges, and that sends Larry into further despair. 
He goes to see the family attorney about it, it's played by Adam Arkin, to fight these charges. But again, that's going to cost money. Feeling desperate and needing answers, he attempts to go see the temple rabbi and really wants to get to the head rabbi, Rabbi Marshek, is played by Alan Mendel. But he's always denied entry when it comes to talking to the man. He's always told he's very busy, even when Marshak is just sitting there, staring off into space. So Larry has to settle for talking to Rabbi Ginsler, as played by Simon Helberg, who's young, new to the job, and doesn't really have any life experience to give him any useful advice. He attempts to tell Larry to just try to adjust his perspective on life, relating to what's happening by offering up an example of, look at the parking lot. When that's shown to be completely useless, Larry ends up tracking down Rabbi Nacher, as played by George Weiner, who, instead of helping Larry with his questions about how to weather such a difficult stretch of life, he instead offers a, f a meandering parable about a dentist who sees writing on the teeth of his patients, the gist of which is, well, really, leading to Larry's ultimate frustration. We can't know everything. We don't know why any of it's happening. Larry is frustrated with the story and left dejected and desperate. While he's out driving, he ends up getting into a car accident. As it would happen, Cy is out driving and he gets into a car accident of his own. The difference is Larry's accident is minor. He just wrecks the car. Cy's accident is fatal. One would think that Larry would be overjoyed, but Judith then comes to him and insists that Larry pays for Cy's funeral, viewing it as the right thing to do. So Larry is forced to sit Shiva for Sai, which really, really makes him mad. He angrily has to sit through the service for Sai Abelman, where Sai is lauded within the community by the rabbi and the other members there as being a serious man, something that further breaks Larry's spirit as he tries to continue on. Not sure of what to do with himself, Larry goes and visits with Vivian next door. Attracted to her from spying on her during his various antenna repairs, and for her part, Vivian flirts with Larry as well, and the two sit down, and with a little coaching from her, they share some marijuana together. Nothing ends up happening between them physically, but Larry does go on to experience a dream where the two of them do sleep together, before it turns into a nightmare where Sai is talking to him from beyond the grave, and where Larry is being boarded up in a coffin. Larry does go with his family to Danny's bar mitzvah, proud to see that his son is officially becoming a man. Not aware that Danny is up front reading to the crowd, stoned. Judith apologizes and does sort of attempt to reconcile with Larry, and she reveals that Cy respected Larry so much that he was sending several letters to the tenure committee on his behalf, which confirms to the physics professor who's exactly been bad-mouthing him the entire time. Still, the process sort of does bring the couple closer together, and as with all young men who make their bar mitzvah, Danny is sent back into the office of the secretive rabbi, Marshik, to have a special one-on-one -on -one conversation and receive some wisdom. But their conversation is very short. Marshik surprisingly just quotes Jefferson Airplane lyrics to the boy, discussing then the band members' names, and he hands him back his transistor radio that was confiscated during his lessons telling him to be a good boy from now on, and sending him on his way. Larry goes into work, and learns that in spite of all the strange letters and the lack of output on his part, it still looks like he's going to get tenure. He then gets the bill for his brother's defense, and he notes that it's rather pricey, $3,000. 
Figuring he's on the hook no matter what, Larry ends up changing Clive Park's grade from an F to a C-, content with his decision. He then receives a call from his doctor, who wants him to come in right away to discuss the results of a chest x-ray in person. As students gather around at Danny's school, a storm starts to brew in the sky, and off in the distance, a massive tornado begins to form and heads towards their location, leaving some to stare in awe while others struggle in vain to open the emergency shelter doors, as credits begin to roll. So where do we even begin? I mean, first and foremost, the acting here, superb. Another fine Cohen film for sure, taken up yet another notch by the cast. For my money, I can't tell you who steals scenes more. Is it Richard Kind or is it Fred Melmod? Kind as Arthur is just so perfect here. He's clearly this broken man who's horribly depressed and is just slowly starting to come unglued completely, just on the verge of that breakdown. His inability to get off of the couch and it's, you know, get a job, try to find a life for himself, that all takes backseat to his insistence on coming up with a grand formula. His mentaculus, or as he shorthand puts it, that probability map of the universe. But when we see it, when his brother picks it up, it's this nightmarish thing, a listing of endless ramblings and math equations and strange drawings, the likes of which clearly show a crumbling mind, unable to handle the stress of a clear crack. And yet again, we later learn that he's been using it, using these probabilities that he's formatting from it, to play sports bets with. So who's to say there isn't some sort of method to all of that madness? He's very good with numbers. I think his, his social skills have held him back. Such a sweet man, though. Arthur has a good heart. He never complains, unlike me. Sometimes I don't give him enough credit. He tried to tell me about this thing he's working on, this... The Mentaculus. He says it's a, uh, a probability map of the universe. Does he go out socially at all? He tries. He's been going to the singles mixers at Hillel House. Well, I should talk. I'm not doing any better. How is Judith? Fine. She's fine. Sometimes these things just aren't meant to be. And it can take a while before you feel what was always there. For better or worse. I never felt it. It was a bolt from the blue. What does that mean? Everything that I thought was one way turns out to be another then it's an opportunity to learn how things really are. I also love that it's teased quietly that Arthur is being arrested for picking up and soliciting men at strange lounges. It, it sort of kind of makes everything snap into focus and explains the strange logic of why he can't, quote, seem to find a nice girl at the mixers he goes to at Temple. And how... You know, he's not doing his brother any favors, clearly, during this disturbing time. It at least makes sense. Kind is his 
just amazing self here. He's so pathetic. He's so gross. He's so full of self-loathing. Making this character closeted, it, it really, really helps the entire understanding of why he's behaving the way he does. And even at some of his lowest moments, Arthur still as he's staying in a motel with his brother Larry, he still views Larry as being the successful one. In spite of them living at the Jolly Roger, in spite of him being up to his eyeballs in debt, in spite of everything, Arthur, sobbing, views Larry as a man who has it all, a family, a job, respect in the community. And as usual, it's Larry who has to stop, reframe how he views his own life, and comfort his brother, telling him, it's going to be okay. Good to see you, Larry. I'll get you to see No, listen, actually, um, I'm here to see you, if I might. Such a thing. Such a thing. Shall we go in the You know, Larry, uh, the way we handle ourselves in this situation is so important. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Judith told me that she broke the news to you, and she said that you were very adult. Did she? Absolutely. The respect she has for you. Yes? Do you drink wine? Because this is an incredible bottle. This is not Morgan David, Larry. This is a, <laughs> a wine. A Bordeaux. You know, sign. Open it. Let it breathe. Ten minutes. Letting it breathe. So important. Thanks, Sai, but I, I'm... Listen, I'm not... I insist, Larry, there's no cause for discomfort. I'd be uncomfortable if you didn't take it. Mm. Larry, listen, these are signs, tokens, Larry. I'm just, I'm not ungrateful. I just don't know a lot about wine, and given okay. our respected... It's okay. Uh... Larry, we're going to be fine. For his part, Melmud is perfect as the queasy, obsequious, oleaginous sigh. Everything the man does is just considered to be an outright attack on the family of Gupnik, delivered, of course, with the guise of a friendly handout. His simpering understanding, his overly touchy nature, clasping his hands around Larry's, always giving him inappropriate feely hugs. Everything about Psy is designed to make a healthy, rational person's skin crawl, as he is clearly moving in and trying to take over the entire Gopnik family, and doing so in a way that makes it look like he's so considerate and understanding, if a little overly huggy, overly touchy, but still an absolute monster. A man who, before all of this went down, would claim to be a good friend and colleague of Larry's, and now he's just a creep. When they all get together to meet to decide what to actually do going forward with the divorce, where he basically takes the helm and talks Larry into moving out of his own home, it is both frightening and funny at the same time for all the wrong reasons, and Melmud really sells it as being the guy who claims to be the cooler head, even though nobody's yelling, nobody's fighting, and he does it just to get his way. Larry, I want to thank you for coming. It's so important we'd be able to discuss these things. 
I'm happy to come to Amber's side, but I'm thinking, really, maybe it's best to leave these discussions to the lawyers. Of course. Legal matters, you let the lawyers discuss. You don't mix apples and oranges. I have begged you to see the lawyer. I told you I'm going Monday. Monday is timely. This is not... Uh, please, Amber's is not the forum for legalities. You're so right. Mm. No, Judith and I wanted merely to discuss... Uh, Practicalities, living arrangements. After all, this is an issue where no one is at odds. Living arrangements? I think we all agree that uh, the children not being contaminated with the tension, most important. We shouldn't put the kids in the middle of this, Larry. The kids aren't. I'm saying we. I'm not pointing fingers. No one is playing the blame game. I didn't say anyone was. Well, let's not play he said, she said either. I, I wasn't. I... All right, look, look, look. Let's just take a step back and, and we can diffuse the situation. You know, Larry, um, sometimes I find that if I count to ten, one, two, three, four, or silently, Really, to keep things on an even keel, leading up to Danny's bar mitzvah. Child's bar mitzvah. Sai and I think it's best if you move out of the house. Move out? Well, it makes eminent sense. Things can't continue as Move they... out? Where would I go? Well, for instance, the Jolly Roger is quite livable. It's not expensive. The rooms are eminently habitable. This would allow you to visit the kids. There's convenience in its favor. You've got a pool. Wouldn't it make more sense for you to move in with Sai? Larry. Larry, you, you are jesting. I think really the Jolly Roger is the appropriate course of action. Another thing that I love that is so bleak at the same time is Gopnik keeps going to these various rabbis for answers and all he wants is some very real honest to goodness explanation from somebody who's wiser than him and honestly all he really wants is to talk to Marshak but he keeps getting the hi-hat treatment and sent to quote the lesser rabbis on the totem pole First, he has to deal with the rabbi Ginsler, that's Simon Helberg's character, who is just too young and too green to help understand. And then he gets passed over to Rabbi Nochter, who is full of stories, but none of them apply to his situation. And for me, this was a very real and relatable phenomenon for certain people of faith, because I can remember my own Catholic upbringing, when I would have to listen to priests who were like, well, at least at the time, only a scant few years older than me, trying to have them lecture myself, or worse, when they were trying to offer up advice you know, to people who were in their 80s, who were married for 40 plus years, and trying to tell them how things should work, when the person who's doing the talking, they've never been married, they're only 24 years old, they've never been in a relationship. So when you hear them spew out these platitudes, none of them can truly help or account for the trouble that Larry is experiencing in the present. And thus, he gets a great kind of lecture like this. She wants oh, a cat. Uh-huh. Sure. I feel like the carpet's been yanked out from under me. I, 
I don't know which end is up. I'm not even sure how to react. I'm too confused. What reasons did she give for the rupture? She didn't give reasons, just that, she, oh, you know, things haven't been going well. And is that true? I guess. I don't know. She's usually right about these things. I was hoping that Rabbi Nachner could... That he would... he would yes? Well, with the benefit of his life experience. No offense. No, of course not. I am the junior rabbi. And it's true, the point of view of somebody who's older and perhaps had similar problems might be more valid. And you should see the senior rabbi as well, by all means, or even Marshak, if you can get in. He's quite busy, but maybe... Can I share something with you? Because I, too, have had the feeling of losing track of Hashem, which is the problem here. I, too, have forgotten how to see him in the world, and when that happens, you think, well, if I can't see him, he isn't there. He's gone. But that's not the case. You just need to remember how to see him. Am I right? I mean, the parking lot here. Not much to see, but if you imagine yourself a visitor, somebody who isn't familiar with these autos and such, somebody still with the capacity for wonder, someone with a fresh perspective. That's what it is, Larry, I... because with the right perspective, you can see Hashem, you know, reaching into the world. He is in the world, not just in shul. It sounds to me like you're looking at the world, looking at your wife through tired eyes. It sounds like she's become a sort of thing, a problem, a thing. She is seeing Cy Abelman. Oh. They're planning. That's why they want the get. Oh, um, sorry. It was his idea. Well, they do need a uh, get to remarry in the faith, but this is life. You have to see these things as expressions of God's will. You don't have to like it, of course. The boss isn't always right, but he's always the boss. <laughs> That's right. Things aren't so bad. Look at the parking lot, Larry. Just look at that parking lot. The greater concept of being tested is really put on display here. If you're religiously inclined, this is indeed a modern retelling of Job, although I would question how successful you thought Larry was before all of these events started to happen to him. If you're not religiously inclined, or see some of the cracks in the Judeo-Christian mythology as presented here, then view this film as a shining example for those who question the order of the universe in general, which is to say there is seemingly no overarching control. Nobody's minding the store. And thus, Larry and his questioning are rendered pointless, since true meaning, either by science or by divination, is a fool's errand. This logic can be seen subtly from the consistent use of Jefferson Airplane's lyrics, when the truth is found out to be a lie, and all hope within you dies, don't you want somebody to love? 
Larry is doing everything that is asked of him here, everything that's expected of him here, and he is himself trying to be a good and righteous person, and yet he's still tormented by setback after setback, by failures on all sides, unable to account for the multiple miseries that are befalling him and members of his family. That this is some sort of direct Job situation right here, and it's tying him all to inexplicable misfortune that is the lot of man. His search for meaning, again, futile, because meaning has been rendered such. Truth is just a cultural construct here, and it's the lies that we tell ourselves every day that things are going to work out alright, that all these things happen for a reason, except when they start to fall apart in the form of Larry's marriage, his career, his health, what's he left with? The only all-embracing desire to be loved. Hence, as Grace Slick demands, and as the rabbi quietly and sort of creepily whispers to Danny, find somebody to love. One does have to wonder, though, what advice would he have given Larry had he gotten past the secretary? Please, I need help. I, I've, I've already talked to the other rabbis. Please. It's not about Danny's bar mitzvah. My boy Danny, this coming Shabbos, very joyous event. That's all fine. It's, it's more about myself. I've, I've had quite a bit of tsuris lately. Marital problems, professional, you name it. This is not a frivolous request. This is a serious... I'm a serious... I'm a... I've tried to be a serious man, you know? Tried to do right, be a member of the community, raise the... Danny, Sarah, they both go to school, Hebrew school, a good breakfast. Well... Danny goes to Hebrew school. Sarah doesn't have time. She mostly washes her hair. Apparently, there are several steps involved, but you don't have to tell Marshak that. Just tell him I need help. Please, I need help. Rabbi is busy. He didn't look busy. He's thinking. Truly, Larry's not a bad guy. He's relatable. He's a regular person. We can find sympathy with him. And he is trying his best, and he's not a fool. But in the context of this indifferent universe, the dragon wins. Often. And Larry doesn't get what he deserves. He just gets what he gets. And honestly, that's not something to be taken lightly. Over the course of the picture, he has his selfish, philandering wife, his wayward fighting children who steal from him, his, of course, no-count brother, 
He's being set up for failure by Psy not to get tenure. He's being blackmailed by the parent of a student. He's in serious debt to try to pay for everything for everyone else. And it's now teased at the end that he's being diagnosed with cancer, although we never get a confirmation on it. In the end, as a bunch of people stand before the awesome force that is a spiraling tornado bearing down on the community, there's a certain flash of fear, and then, for some, seemingly acceptance of all of this. Call it God's will, or just consider it part of an uncaring void. The two look awfully similar when it's bearing down on you, poised to destroy everything. And yet, Larry keeps getting up keeps going to work, keeps facing it. Is he a schmuck for doing so? In my opinion, no. In all of his trials and tribulations, the one thing Larry doesn't do, he doesn't stop. He keeps going. Unlike some of the others who try to claim that they are, or men like Psy, who get posthumously lauded for it, Larry is, even though he remains searching, a serious man with integrity. Much like the line that Larry gives his own students, Actions do have consequences. We see it again and again as the film goes on. Be they small at the moment, like the radio getting confiscated, thus $20 that it contains can't be returned, or have it be a massive incidence where Psy takes his eyes off the road. One instant, one mistake, but he ends up killed in a car accident for it. These things, while they seem random... The preceding events that lead up to them seem minor and random themselves. And as Larry says to his students, trying hard to get them to understand the uncertainty principle that he's teaching, you can't ever really know what's going on. But you're still going to be responsible for it on the midterm. He's unable to follow his own advice, though, when it comes to his situation. Larry can only stare after spending so much time trying to know why. As the storm approaches... So I can hear you now. Chris, how was the film received? Well, A Serious Man had an interesting response. Critics actually enjoyed it. They were quick to point out how in favor they were for the story and the acting. Once again, the Coens made a solid film. But for some, it wasn't quite enough. The concept was really bleak. It's as if a modern translation of an Old Testament story would somehow not be a crowd-pleaser for modern audiences. Who would have figured? David Denby of The New Yorker praised the film as it came together, but summed up the experience as being hell to sit through, noting that the story's fascinating in every other way, it's intolerable. Joe Morgenstern of the Wall Street Journal, who I'm not a fan of, shared an equally harsh critique, bemoaning that all of the characters were dislikable, and that there was not a display of redemption for any of them. Now, I can agree that the movie's dark, but the subject matter paints sort of a bleak picture itself, but Gopnik himself is sympathetic for sure. Or, I mean, look at him, he's being hammered into the ground by the forces of life, as if he's a tent spike. And knowing that he still keeps trying, we can have empathy for him as a character. He's not bringing things upon himself, nor is he trying to shirk his duties from life. He's just struggling to get through, and trying to look for meaning and understanding in a world that's clearly indifferent to him. That being said, like most of the Coen Brothers pictures, again, 
the broad majority of critics were on board and gave favorable reviews. Punching bag of mine, Roger Ebert, uh, gave four out of four stars and complimented Stuhlbarg's performance, that of a hopeful man who can't believe just what's happening to him. Todd McCarthy of Variety noted that the Cohen skills are attentive to the occasion, precision is the name of the game, with writing, camera placement, editing, music choices, and the pitch of performances, all which are poised between heightened naturalism and comic stylization. In short, perfect. Audiences equally took note. While it wasn't a blockbuster picture, like some of their previous offerings, it did, when it opened on October 2nd, 2009, get lots of butts in seats. People bought tickets to go see a serious man, and by the time it finished its run, it ended up clearing $31.4 million at the box office, which is not a bad profit for a little movie that was made for only $7 million. Nice, you know, but hey, nothing crazy. Admittedly, though, it's a film that not a lot of folks have seen, and those who have seen it invariably speak favorably of it, and recommend it, making it a great word-of-mouth picture. The problem is, well, again, the subject matter. Look, I can't sugarcoat it. Watching a man have his life systematically come undone at every single turn, that can be a hard sell for folks that are looking for a frivolous, fun night at the movies. But when people come asking for something of quality, something that's going to make them, you know, think, perhaps looking to challenge a bit of faith or a bit of preconceived notions, well, a serious man is there to check those boxes and to do it with a bit of style, humor, and artistry that the Coens have so wonderfully honed over the years. The version of A Serious Man screened here at the LSCE was the 2011 Focus Features DVD release, which comes with some really cool featurettes. Two featurettes, one starting with Becoming Serious and the other Creating 1967, not to mention a fun and humorous how-to guide, a Hebrew to Yiddish for goys, which is a lot of fun and quite informative. It's a Coen Brothers movie, folks. You get good quality here, and it can be yours right now if you go to Amazon and get it for the low, low price of $4.99, which, honestly, is a steal if you ask me. Of course, if you feel like being a big spender and you'd like to get a copy of the film with the very same features on Blu-ray, you can get that too on Amazon for $7.49. And again, I feel you're getting a bargain in that process. Now, remember folks, we don't get anything here at the LSCE for telling you where to purchase your films from. We just feel in this day and age, it's important to support physical media so that these fine companies who own the rights to these prints will keep releasing the content that we all know and love. And at the end of the day, isn't that what it's all really about? Getting more of what you know and love? Besides, this is a fantastic movie, brought to you by the brilliant minds that are the Coen brothers, and delivering great rumination on how we understand and attempt to make sense of things that happen in everyday life. So what are you waiting for? Get out there and get yourself a copy of A Serious Man today. So that's going to wrap things up here for this episode of I Saw It on Linden Street. Thank you so much for joining us. 
If you like what we do here, that would be the LSCE Dachshunds and myself, please give us a favorable review on Apple Podcasts, hit that subscribe button, or hey, just do that wherever you're listening to us on. Did you leave us a fun review? Hell, I'll read it right here and give you a shout-out on the show. Just think of it as my way of saying, we love that you recognize our love of cinema. Please swing by, check out our website. That would be the lscep.com, where we have articles, episode links, and comics for you to peruse. I'm proud to announce that we've been added to Amazon Music, so if you have an account, simply say, Hey Alexa, play I Saw It on Linden Street, today. We're also featured on Podchaser. That's a podcast database for listeners and creators alike. Find us there. Give us a follow and review if you could, please. And hey, feel free to do that to any of the lists that we're a part of to help give us a boost in the old rankings. You see, the more reviews and the increased likes on places like Apple and like Podchaser and Good Pods, that affects those marvelous algorithms, and then it makes us more searchable, and we can share more of these films with more people. And you want to do that, don't you? <laughs> of course you do. We're coming up again on our year-end review, so if you want to have your questions to us, your comments suggestions for movies you want us to cover things you thought I got wrong things you thought I got right we want to hear from you please feel free send us an audio clip send us an email send us a message all the way over at lindenstreetcinemaexperience at gmail.com where we will happily happily take the time to review and listen in the order that we find interesting do you love social media? Well, we use it here. Feel free to follow us on Twitter at LSCEP or find us on Instagram at LSCE underscore podcast. If you'd like to be even more personable or wish to contribute a segment to the sidecar, feel free to send us an audio message by way of Anchor. That's a free and easy app to use. So until next time, please, everybody, take care out there. Wash your hands, wear a mask, stay healthy. And remember, life's too short not to live in the past. Take it easy out there, everybody. And now, folks, it's time to say goodnight. We sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment. Please drive home carefully and come back again soon. Good night.
Sod on Linden Street.